talked about last week is sometimes when we hit this point where we're exhausted, we don't need to pray more or read the Bible more. What we need is to sleep. We need to allow ourselves to truly rest. Now, there's a time and a place for the Bible reading. There's a time and a place for for quiet time. But if we are this ragged, what we need first is rest. And what I'm finding is if I allow myself to rest, then spending time with God becomes much, much easier. If I actually go to bed at a reasonable hour, it's not drudgery to try to get up in the morning and spend time with God. In fact, I look forward to it. If I go to bed at an ungodly hour, then I, there's, you know, then my kids wake me up and I'm like, oh, here they come. The wild herd of water buffalo. You know, and I just, it, but, but when I actually get that sleep, when Kat and I have been going to bed at like 9, 9.30 at night, my body naturally wakes up at 5, 5.30, and it's just like, I get to spend time with God. And then my boys get up at 6.30, and it's like, I get to spend time with my boys. It changes everything. And that begins the night before. So he lets him rest and he lets him sleep and he feeds him and he hydrates him. And then finally, after a time, he says, okay, Elijah, we need to spend some time together. And so he leads him 200 miles south from Beersheba down to the Sinai Peninsula to this mountain here that's referred to as Horeb, but there's another name that it's called in scripture. It's called Mount Sinai, 200 miles. He travels for 40 days and 40 nights to get to this mountain where God had originally covenanted with the people of Israel with Moses and given him their 10 commandments. And he comes to the same mountain. He takes about 40 days to get there, which means he's traveling at about five miles an hour, which is about half. Let's say that he travels for 10 hours out of each day. That means half a mile an hour. That is a painfully slow pace. He's not in a hurry. And he has all of this time to sit with this sea of emotion that's churning within his heart. Probably disappointment. God, I thought that, that you called me and yet this is happening. They, they've broken down your altars. They've completely forgotten about you. Perhaps there was some anger underneath there. God, where are you? I'm your man and yet you let a, a, this pagan woman treat me this way and basically she is in control of our country. She's in control of the God that's worshipped. God, what on earth? Sorrow, I'm sure, was tons of sorrow underneath there and discouragement and disappointment and whatever else might be there. All of that stuff, he has 40 days to start grappling with it and it goes from just this overwhelming sense of, I'm done, to he begins to be able to wrap the fingers of his heart around this pearl of great pain underneath the surface. And he climbs up Mount Sinai and he crawls into a cave and he collapses. And let's pick up the story now in verse 9. There, Elijah went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, and now remember, he's had 40 days to sit and process. Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But the the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Come on. He just lays it out there. And so last week there was one fill-in that you guys didn't get. And a lot of you are asking, well, what was it? And that fill-in, we decided to make the first one this week so you can get it. Okay. And that is he names his pain. He puts into words this pearl of great pain that he carries around with him. And it's helpful that he's had some time to process because oftentimes when we are triggered, 
our first thing is just to go with energy and just, ah, and you say things sometimes that you don't mean. And it's only after some time of calming down and you stop seeing red. Or perhaps it's you just need a little bit of time alone in solitude to kind of work through what's going on for me. Why am I reacting this way? Why am I feeling so insecure? Why am I feeling so angry? Why am I feeling so fatalistic at this point that I just want to be done with everything? And it's only after having some time in solitude that we can begin to actually name it. But it also takes tremendous courage. And I love the fact that Elijah is courageous enough to put into words what he's feeling while it's still pretty raw. Because that means one of two things. Either A, he trusts God enough to be honest with him. Or two, he's just kind of at the end of his rope and he says, forget it. You might as well just know because I'm done. Right? But either way, he speaks into existence or he speaks out loud what he is feeling inside. He invites God into it. We'll keep reading now. The Lord said to him, oh, and just, just, just before I move past that. Also notice his perception, his perspective on this. God, all of Israel have turned their back on you. They've all torn down your altars. It's not just Ahab and Jezebel. It's all of them in his mind. They've killed all your prophets. And I'm the only one left. I'm totally alone. That's his perception. The Lord God said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then this is the part that we typically read. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany. It's just a big word for God showing up, right? And the last time that God showed up on this mountain, it's back in uh, the Exodus, God shows up and the mountain is shaking and there are peals of thunder and lightning and there's smoke billowing up on the mountain and the people of God are understandably terrified. Moses, you talk to us. We don't want to hear God's voice because we'll die. And Moses looks at them and he goes, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. But this is happening so that the fear of the Lord will be with you. And that word fear, yare in Hebrew, means a reverential respect for someone that is far more powerful than you. God, basically what they were learning on that mountain as God showed up with lightning and fire and thunder and all that kind of stuff is that I am God and you are not. And I am coming to covenant with you. You don't have to be terrified of me. But there is this aspect of a reverential respect that in some ways we've lost when we start looking at God as our buddy. You know, he's just the one we add. We sprinkle a little bit of God to our lives to make our best life happen now. And I'm just going, "Ah, I think we're missing the point here. He's still God. And the fear, the reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom, because when you begin to reverentially respect that he is God and we are not, rather than demanding that he orient his world around us. We begin to orient our lives around him. It's a totally different perspective. Same thing happens here. There is a a very strong wind, so strong, in fact, that it shatters rocks. 
but God is not in that wind. There's an earthquake, but he's not in the earthquake. And there's fire, but he's not in the fire. And then there is this still, quiet whisper. And it's at this point that Elijah wraps his cloak around himself and walks out into the presence of the Lord. And, you know, we're we're talking a lot about hearing God's voice. And I began to think this week, well, it would probably be helpful for us to have a brief kind of conversation about how God speaks to us. How can we begin to recognize his voice over and against all of the other voices that vie for our attention? And I, before I delve into this, and I'm going to take about a five to ten minute detour as we just explore how we can recognize God's voice, but I want to start with this caveat. Any attempt that I take to try to articulate how God speaks to us would be tantamount to me trying to describe what a sunset looks like based upon only my experience of it. It's going to be limited, right? And it's going, to, it's going to kind of narrow the focus of what a sunset could look like because I've only seen them here on the, on, in the West Coast. Or it would be like me trying to articulate what is in the heart of a woman with only 50 words. I might... Dangerous. Limited. I might get long, broad brush strokes, right? But I'm going to miss a tremendous amount of depth that I might not even fully understand. I'm still learning. 13 years into marriage to Kathy, I'm still learning the depths of beauty in there. Sometimes I don't even recognize it. So, any attempt that I take right now to articulate how God speaks will be limited, and it will be limiting. It'll put shackles or, or a box around Uh, an infinite God who can speak in any number of ways. And just look at Scripture. Look at the ways that he does it. He has spoken to Adam and Eve in person as they walked in the garden together. This one time with a guy named Moses, he spoke through a burning bush, but that's the only time I've heard of that happening. He, He has spoken through visions, people having pictures in their minds that just speak volumes. I was talking with a friend this week who has had a couple of visions just this week that really ministered to his heart. He also speaks through dreams. Some of you have had dreams and you wake up and, or we even look in scripture and look at the number of times that dreams come up and the ways that they speak to their reality. He also speaks through third-party intermediaries, whether that be an angel like he sent an angel to speak with Mary and tell her, hey, guess what? You're going to be the mother of, of God's son. He, he speaks through other people, sometimes through prophets. There's a reason why prophets aren't so popular, because they challenge the status quo. He speaks through regular people, and he even spoke at one point through a donkey. Not Mr. Ed. <laughs> but Close. So he speaks through any number of ways. And if I were to try to articulate for you two or three ways that God might speak to you, my fear would not be that I would limit God as if I could somehow put shackles on him. He's God. My concern would be that I would actually limit your expectations of how he might speak to you. And in so doing, you might miss when he is trying to speak with you. That said... While I don't feel comfortable necessarily saying, hey, here's how he will speak to you, I do feel comfortable in speaking to the tone and tenor of his voice when he does. Because scripture paints a beautiful picture of the heart of our Father God. And he is not simply some, he's not the God of the deists 
that would say he's like this divine watchmaker that just wound up the world and is watching it spin out of control. He is an intimately involved God who doesn't just look at us as his creation. He looks at us as his sons and his daughters and he treats us accordingly. And so when he speaks, more often than not, he speaks with gentleness and love. Now, some of you might be going, well, that's not how I hear God's voice. When I hear God's voice, it's often pretty angry. Sometimes it's even a little bit sarcastic, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're going to do well on this. Oh, yeah. It's not encouraging. Some of you might feel like God just kind of holds you at arm's length and then he just shows up to kind of show you all the things that you do wrong, right? I was talking with a friend of mine who came from a pretty abusive background, and uh, he would, his father used to say stuff over him like, you're an idiot or you're stupid. I mean, he would speak these words. We're, we're, we're learning with our sons that it's okay to call a, a decision out as not very smart. Sometimes we'll even use the S word stupid. That was a dumb decision. But we never want to label our children something. You are stupid or you, you, you know, because that, that starts shaping an identity. And while they may not make wise choices, they are wise boys, and we want to raise wise men. And so we're very careful about that. But my, my buddy, his dad, just kind of unloaded on him. And he weathered that, and he was shaped by that, and his psyche was formed by that. And so I was asking him one time, because we were wrestling with, like, he, he has this area of sin he kept finding himself going back to again and again and again. And I just asked him, well, what do you think God would say to you right now? And almost without thinking, he goes, well, I think you'd probably tell me, stop being such an idiot and stop it. And I couldn't help but think, that doesn't sound like our Father God. It sounds a whole heck of a lot like your dad. And isn't that kind of how we... I wonder if sometimes the reason that we hear God speaking in a harsh, critical voice is because we have integrated the voice of our parents, perhaps a father or a father figure, somebody who was influential in shaping us into our lives and then stamped God's name over those tapes. And so when we begin to hear criticism, we're saying it's God speaking when in reality it's our own insecurity and it's the wounds that have been inflicted upon us. God loves us. He is for us. And we need to begin to separate the voice of our Father God from the voices that, that our culture kind of throws out and says, you are a mistake or you are a screw-up or you're a disappointment or whatever else might be there. We need to recognize that that's not the way he speaks to us. Now, this then begs the question, well, how, what does this look like? How, how do we do this? One thing that I have found, and this, this is one of these pieces that I've heard somebody else say, and when they said it's like, yes, this is true, and I've carried this around with me. Think about for a moment, if God is for us, look at all the ways that throughout humanity's experience, even though we rejected him, even though we ran to sin, even though Adam and Eve grabbed the fruit and disobeyed because they didn't trust him, and so they went to the fruit as kind of that pseudo-savior to give them what they felt they were missing— even so, 
He never gives up on mankind. He constantly is looking for ways to redeem us from the pit that we have fallen or jumped into. How do we know what love is? This is how we know what love is. God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us. While we were still in sin, not before, not because we'd earned it, not because we'd done enough good things to warrant it, while we were still in complete and open rebellion to him, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. That's love. And because God is for us, because his desire is to redeem us, the posture with which he speaks to us flows out of that. Our God loves us, but that does not mean that he turns a blind eye to the choices that we make. It doesn't mean that he just becomes a pushover pal that just wants us to, do, wants us to be happy, and so he's never going to challenge us on anything. Hebrews 12 talks about the fact that God is our father, and like any good father, he disciplines us for our own well-being. He trains us up. He shapes us into the image of his son. But he does it to help us get stronger and to help pull us away from the things that draw us away from him. And toward that, he will convict us. But he will never condemn us. And there is a massive difference between those two words, conviction and condemnation. In convicting us, He is building off of the the premise that we are his sons and his daughters. Hey, be who I've created you to be and who I have called you to be. You're my son. You're my daughter. So I'm inviting you to act like it. Condemnation, on the other hand, negates that. (sighs) And you call yourself a son or daughter of God. You are a failure. You, You don't deserve to be called his son. You don't deserve to be called his daughter. That's condemnation. It's the opposite. Conviction invites us to come out of hiding and to move towards him. Condemnation pushes us into the shadows and back into hiding. Conviction is all about relationship and strengthening us. Condemnation is all about weakening us. And I will tell you that our Father God is about bringing us into relationship with Him, strengthening us so that we can represent Him and be in relationship with Him. So that comes out of convicting us, but not condemning us. But we do, we do have an enemy that has a very long track record of utilizing condemnation and shame and guilt. He showed it right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden right after he tempted them to take the fruit. He is the father of lies and accusations, and he loves to tempt us. And when we give into that temptation, then he beats us over the head with it and says, if anybody knew this, they'd be disgusted. You better hide this deep down. You better do some extra special good things to kind of paper mache over this because you are a disappointment. So I just want you to consider what, what is it that you hear in your mind? Is it conviction or is it condemnation? If you're feeling condemnation, if you're feeling like you are a disappointment, a disgrace, a failure, that is not from your Father in heaven. That is straight from the pit of hell. And I would suggest you treat it as such and take authority over that and say, no, 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 get away from me, Satan. I'm a son or daughter of God. I should probably mention 
uh, as, we, as we are delving into this, that when I'm talking about hearing God's voice, I personally am not talking about audibly hearing it, not, not specifically that. Now, there are certainly people who have audibly heard God's voice. And in no way am I going to suggest that he can't do that. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Personally, I've never audibly heard God speak, but I've heard him speak to me a number of times. More often than not, when God speaks to me, and again, I don't want to make this a rule. This is simply my experience. I'm now going to try to describe a couple of sunsets to you. Okay? Do not think that this is the sum total of how God speaks. But when God speaks to me, I have found that he tends to do it either in images or words. Images, sometimes, sometimes they're static, like a picture. Sometimes it's more like a gif where it's just, it's a very short little kind of, uh, of scene, but it carries within it a tremendous amount of, of, of truth. Other times it's just a couple of words. But again, like a zip file, when I, when I lean into those couple of words, they unzip, they unfold to, to carry within them a tremendous amount of meaning and truth. Let me give you one example. About eight years ago, I was a pastor of another church, and I was, uh, I was a pastor at another church. And at that time in my life, I was ministering out of the dregs. I was, I was ministering, I, I, I was almost more like caring for other people out of obligation and responsibility rather than out of the overflow of my own connection with God. And he brought me to a point at one point where I realized I can't sustain this. I'm performing, and it's really unhealthy. And I was, in a, I was in a very dry place, kind of like Elijah was at. And so God did something similar there. He, he, he called me to step away from my job, even though we are at this point, you know, had a, 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 we are a single income family. Kathy was still working on her, her master's in marriage and family therapy. Um, and we had a one-year-old son. So it was very much like, a, hey, do you trust me? Then step out of your job and hang out with me. So we did that, and I spent that next month just trying to find the next job. I didn't know if I needed to go back and get my master or my, my PhD so that I could teach full-time or whether I should become a full-time writer or if I should um, you know, go back into pastor, pastoring. So I, I interviewed at a whole bunch of different places, and by the end of that month, I was way more ragged and tired than I had been at the beginning of that month. Great rest, right? And it was during a morning kind of quiet time before the rest of, before Kathy and Ethan had woken up. I'm sitting on the couch doing my kind of solitary, um, you know, Sabbath time and I had a journal in my lap and I heard two words impressed onto my heart just as clearly as I've heard him say anything. Two words, be still. I wrote it down and I leaned into it and it was like it unzipped and all of a sudden all of this meaning it was so much deeper than any two words should be able to convey. But all of this meaning came out. Eric, stop striving. Stop trying to find another job. Stop trying to get yourself out of this. I am your shepherd. You're not going to be in want, but I'm going to make you lie down in a green pasture for a little bit. I'm going to lead you beside some restoring waters where you can be replenished. Because I'm in the process of restoring your soul. All of that contained in a couple of words. And I knew, don't try to go get another job. Don't try to get out of this. And for 
I think seven months, he kept me in that posture of being still. It is to this day one of the most powerful seasons of my life, one I would never choose to walk back through because so much of my identity is wrapped up in what I do. It's very, very painful and difficult, but at the same time so unbelievably restorative. And it came out of two words. Uh, my buddy was sharing with me this week how he has, God has given him a couple of pictures. And they were like those moving gifts of, you know, it just, he just saw a couple of moments. And again, as he leaned into them during his quiet time this week, it was as if God just unwrapped them to have a tremendous amount of information, a tremendous amount of truth, and it just resonated for him. And I found that to be the case as well. When I heard, be still, and I'm thinking as, as a husband to a wife with a kid, single income family, everything in me screams, go get another job, get up off your butt and stop being lazy, right? That is wisdom of the world. And this flies in the face of it. And yet it, it resonated with my heart, with my spirit. And I've learned to pay attention to my, the, the spirit within because as I hear words, it becomes like a filter for us. And it sat and it just resonated like, yes, there, there is truth here. I need to hear this. Now, there are other times that I've heard things and my spirit kind of threw up a red flag. I don't know about how it works for you, but with me, when I feel like my spirit's like, pay attention, I tend to feel this tightness in my chest. And, 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 I, and I've learned personally to pay attention to that feeling because it's like, okay, something's amiss. I need to be careful here. Now, some of you are going, well, that is pretty subjective, Eric. I mean, honestly, you, you mean to tell me that that's how you make decisions with your family is off a of feeling? Is that how you lead our church? Thankfully, it is not, my, my, the spirit within me is not the only sort of thing that I have to be able to use to check the, the, what I'm hearing. Thankfully, I've also got scripture as a phenomenal filter. Because here's the thing about our God. He's the same yesterday and tomorrow as he is today. There is no shifting and changing. He's not fickle like I find myself to be at times. And because of that fact, if I hear something and it contradicts scripture, I can be pretty certain that that's not from him. Now, that's not to say that he's not going to challenge at times my perceptions of Scripture. Just a couple of weeks, I shared one of those examples of how he did. I have, for the longest time, looked at solitude as getting away into, into the wilderness, like Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. I viewed that as weakness, being in the wilderness, being alone and isolated. I've always viewed that as, why, why on earth is the Spirit of God leading Jesus to a place where he's more vulnerable than before so he can be attacked by the enemy? Like, is God making sure that he's ready? And then when I heard another pastor say, what if that place of solitude is actually a place of strength, not weakness? The, my spirit within goes, listen to this, pay attention. And it was as if like I got a spiritual chiropractic adjustment of that perception all of a sudden. And it made sense because all the, that reading of scripture was faithful to the rest of God's character as illustrated by the rest of scripture. 
And before it was like, well, this is a little burr in my understanding of God's character. That seems out of character to him. To lead Jesus to a place where he's more weak and more in danger of being attempted or tempted and, and, and falling. Because doesn't James say that he doesn't tempt us? So what's going on here? And all of a sudden it was like, no. The Spirit was leading him into a place of solitude where he would be strengthened in his communion with God, knowing who he was so that when the enemy showed up, he would not be as, 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 as vulnerable to his attacks. He would be able to recognize the twisted words of the enemy for what they were. Right? And so that is an example of how... The spirit within me at times can help even shift and help me understand God's word. But God's word is a filter for our understanding of what we're hearing. And it's a terribly important one. So I know that was a lot. Thank you for going on that little kind of detour with me. But it's terribly important that we begin to understand the voice of our father God and be able to discern from all the other voices that we hear, whether it's our own internal psyche or whether it's the world or whether it's our enemy. And here we have a man who finds himself at his end, up on a mountain, confronted with God. And, he's, and God is not in the earthquake. He's not in the wind. He's not in the fire. A lot of times we think that our Father speaks to us in fire and fury. And I would suggest oftentimes he speaks to us in those still quiet moments of our life that we don't get a whole lot of. There's a reason why we keep pushing on this need for solitude, for clipping away the noise. Because it's there that his still quiet voice comes through. Like a a radio. It's not that he's not speaking to us. It's that we're not tuned in. Instead, we've tuned in and turned up the volume on so many other things. And he's speaking. We just can't hear. So when Elijah, this is verse 13, when Elijah heard the gentle whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same exact question that he'd asked him a few moments before. And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Now, I know that those are exactly the same words that he said earlier. But personally, I can't help but read those with a different tone of voice. Because I think something has shifted for Elijah between the first time he was asked, what are you doing here? And the second, God has shown up and there's been that that kind of powerful display of God's power that instills that reverential respect for him. But then there's also been that very intimate, quiet stillness, an an invitation to come close. And as that happens, I believe that for Elijah, and again, this is just my own conjecture, so you can take it or leave it. But I believe that the, the anger and frustration and just snarkiness that may have been present in Elijah's first response has dissipated into the ether, kind of burned away by God's intimate presence. And so when he speaks the second time, he speaks out of what's usually underneath that reaction 
out of the sorrow and the sadness and the pain and the disappointment and the discouragement and the, ah, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And he identifies all of Israel as having turned their backs on God. That everybody has sided with Ahab and Jezebel and I am totally alone. And I'm exhausted. And the Lord does something here. He kind of reframes the entire thing for Elijah. We read in verse 15, The Lord said to him, Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. There, when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, which is another kingdom a little bit outside of of Israel. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. This will be the replacement for Ahab. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mola, to succeed you as prophet. I'm, I'm raising up another who will help carry the weight that you have been carrying, who will continue on the ministry that I have given you to do. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death all who escape the sword of Jehu. In other words, the status quo will not stand. And I am giving you marching orders. But notice the next thing he does, verse 18. He completely reframes Elisha's, Elijah's perspective of his reality. Remember, he was saying, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. Verse 18. God says to him, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, you think you're alone, but you're not alone. You think you're the only one. You're not the only one. There are over 7,000 others who have yet to bend a knee and I am calling them out. They are the remnant that I will rebuild my kingdom on. So, Do not despair that you're the only one. What I love here is that God not only reframes his perspective, but then he gives him a brand new kind of purpose. You're not alone. Here's what I want you to do. And so when Elijah walks back down that mountain the same way that he came up it, although the path might be the same, the man who walks down that mountain is a radically different person than who walked up it. And here's what I have found about time in solitude, and this is why it's so important. Solitude is not the place where our circumstances change. They rarely do. But solitude is the place where we are changed. Solitude is the place where our perception of our circumstances change. And because of that, it makes all the difference in the world. I'll repeat that one more time because this is probably the most important point that I'm going to share with you today. Our time in solitude is not the place where our circumstances change, but it is the place where our perception of our circumstances changes. Let me give you two examples. A couple weeks ago, actually it was back in January, during a day of retreat for me where I just, I needed to just get some time with God. I try to build this into my regular rhythm of life now um, where I take one day and it's typically a day that I would otherwise be at work and I, and I just go and get away with God. 
space to carve out time to listen. And I find that I hear his voice best out in nature. So I went to the Laguna Wilderness and I was just kind of hiking through it. And I got to the kind of the top of this area. It was, I was almost kind of the, to the peak where I was going to start needing to head back down. And as I was walking up, for whatever reason, I started going, God, there's so many young families in this community that we're doing life with, that we're around. How can we get more of them to come to Lighthouse? I was kind of going, I, I, want, I want more youth to be able to, to lean into this unbelievable wealth of men and women who have been walking for God for, for decades. I want them, I want my brothers and sisters out here to be able to benefit from the beauty of, of you know, decades and decades of following Jesus and loving one another and all that kind of stuff. And I heard as clearly as he, as he lays stuff on my heart, in my head, again, not audibly, just kind of, I felt him say, what would you do if I sent them? And I kid you not, I stopped in my tracks, just like this. I'm just like, and I sat with that for a moment. What would I do if I sent, if, if he sent him? And I kind of leaned into it. And again, like that zip file, it started unfolding. And I started understanding more of what he was driving at. What would happen if he began to send droves of people to our church to the point where we could no longer fit in here? Now we have to do a second service, maybe even a third service. Yay, we got more people. And yet, at this time, I feel like God has been saying, I'm trying to help you drill down deeply into the purpose that I have given you as a church to make disciples who love God, love one another, love your neighbor. That's what you are about as a community. That's what I am calling you to do as leadership to help make this part of the DNA of the church. And there's a lot. We've made great strides, but there's a lot more work to do there. And we are just trying to keep our arms around all of you who call this place home and saying we need to make enough space in life groups for you to be able to plug in. And we're trying to pilot D groups so that you guys can do life with a couple of other people of the same gender and be known. And we're trying to find space on the field for you to play and give of yourself and your time, whether here at the church or beyond it, and loving our neighbors. And I began to realize, God, you are protecting us for this season of putting down deep roots so that this can become part of our DNA so that is, as you begin to send new people, we will be able to have space to care for them. So it's, so it's not just, hey, come to church and hear a great message. Please throw some you know, change in the till and, and we'll all go on. No, that's not what it's about. We're not about simply putting on a good show. We are about transformation. And I began to celebrate the fact that we are where we're at. I began to celebrate the season. So when I took my next step, it was with a radically different perspective on our current circumstances. And I am so grateful, by the way, for those of you who are new. I do not share that in order to say, hey, you're not wanted right now. I am so grateful. I am so grateful that you're here. And in fact, it's been really fun to see many of the new faces that he is bringing, ironically, that next weekend, we started seeing a lot of new faces. And there are many of you here who have been here maybe for the last month or two. You're welcome here. And I just want you to hear, this is what we're about as a church. If you were not here in January for our vision series, I would ask you, if you are considering making Lighthouse your home, would you please listen to those four messages? Because those are crucial to where we are going and what we're about. We are not looking simply for more passengers who want to show up for the, for the show. We're looking for crew members who say, this is my church. I'm about the vision and I'm willing to get up off of my deck chair 
and join them in doing what God has called them to do, which is to make disciples who can make more disciples. Okay? So, all right. Um, So that's one example. Let me give you one more of the way that God doesn't necessarily change our circumstances, but can completely reframe our perception of our circumstances. A few weeks ago, I was out in Las Vegas at a church. I was not taking our tithes there to like double down on them or anything like that. <laughs> Even though I told a couple of people, yeah, tithing's been down, so I'm going to go double down. <laughs> I know, terrible joke. I was out in Vegas meeting with another church out there that is doing some amazing things. Just, I, I'm constantly trying to, to learn from others. And so I was out there talking with this executive pastor of a very large church that's seen some amazing things happen. And, and he was just speaking very candidly. And he said, you know, like a month ago, I was sitting in my backyard lamenting to God. Why on earth does everything have to be so hard? Why is everything a battle? Why do we have to fight for every little thing that we try to do? And he felt like as he was sitting there, God said, It's a fight because you're taking land that the enemy considers to be his. And as he sits with that, it begins to unfold. And he realizes, well, of course. When the Israelites went to go take the promised land, they had to fight for every hill, every village, every town. Because they were taking territory that the enemy had claimed as his. And he felt like God was kind of telling him, if you want out of the fight, then just pitch your tent right where you're at. And say, this is far enough. And in that moment, his perspective of, oh God, why? Totally transformed to, God, thank you so much for, for finding us worthy to be in this battle. And anytime you, you feel like I'm no longer useful to you, then you're more than welcome to remove me. But for as long as you are willing to use me, and so long as I am am a tool for you, use me to fight, to take every square inch. I don't care how much of a battle it is. It's worth it. Had his circumstances changed? Not one iota. Had his perception changed? Absolutely. That is what happens when we get away into solitude. It will reframe, it can at times reframe our perspective of our circumstances. And then when we walk, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. As we come back out of of that time of solitude, as we enter back into the regular flow of life, maybe because our kids wake up or, you know, we go to work or we go to school or we go, you know, it was our lunch break that we were spending some time with them and now we enter back into work or school. We get to become conduits of our connection with God. We get to be ambassadors of the hope and purpose and perspective that we found in him. When Elijah walked back down the mountain the same direction he came, He walked back into the exact same circumstances, but he came with a new perspective and a new purpose. And that's what happens for us in solitude. And so here's my my challenge to each of us. Do not run from the discomfort of solitude. I know that it's uncomfortable to walk through a valley that sometimes feels very dark where we are exposed to our own imperfections. But that is the place of refinement where God begins to shape us in his image, give us perspective of what he's doing and show us what our part is that we can play. 
and it's worth it. It may be scary, but remember, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. And if he could use a donkey to speak truth, he can use us. So, Father God, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. And as we go into a time of response now where we just sit with you, would you give us the ears to hear what it is you want to say to us? Some of us are carrying some pretty stinking heavy loads right now. Some of us are finding ourselves in a position like Elijah did where we're just exhausted at the end of ourselves. Others of us look at the circumstances of our lives and say, I didn't sign up for this. And I'm weary. God, would you, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak into our lives. Would you give us ears to recognize your voice and hearts that are willing to obey? Would you change our perceptions and give us fresh marching orders, even if they're the same ones that we've had for decades? Because we want to be about your business. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're going to worship together. Obviously, Pastor Jeff and um, a couple of other our, our other elders will be in the back. Tom and Terry, sorry. I, you're always sitting there, so I always pick on you. Will you guys be up here? And Kat and I will be up here. If you would like prayer, we are available. If you just want to kind of get down on your knees in response, or if you want to stand up and raise your hands in response right now, that's fine. But let's just respond to our Father God.